Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Parson and Michael Baranowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Marian Nessel, the leading public intellectual in the United States on on issues related to public health, nutrition, and food policy. She's the Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University, as well as a professor of sociology at NYU and a visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell. Professor Nessel has authored many articles in academic journals, as well as nine books, including Food Politics and, most recently, Soda Politics. Professor Nessel, welcome to the show. Oh, glad to be here. You know, when I think about the politics of food, your name is the first one that comes to mind. Uh, I think you've established what I feel is a very well-deserved reputation for clear and authoritative analysis of food politics issues. And and I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you is, what is it about this issue, uh, that this area, that first interested you, and how did it end up becoming your life's work? Well, I can answer that question by saying that I went to a conference on uh, behavioral determinants of cancer, of all things, and I heard talks by physicians who were anti-smoking advocates, and they showed, they gave talks in which they showed slide after slide after slide of cigarette marketing all over the world, and also cigarette marketing to children all over the world. And I knew that cigarettes were bad for people. I knew that the cigarette companies advertised, but I had never seen it put together that way. And I realized that I'd never paid any attention to it, that cigarette marketing was such a part of the normal landscape of daily life that I just hadn't paid any attention to it. Um, And I walked out of those talks and I thought, we should be doing the same thing for food. (laughs) And that was it. Wow. You know, and, and I know that in your, all of your experience, you've had so much experience in this area, but uh, in addition to just your academic experience, I believe in the mid-1980s, you were uh, a senior nutrition policy advisor at the Department of Health and Human Services, and you also edited the Surgeon General's report on nutrition in health. Um, and of course, you've been in academia for a while before that. And so I'm wondering if working in the government maybe changed your understanding or or gave you a different view of government influence on health and nutrition? Oh, it absolutely did. I was only in Washington for two years in that job, but uh, the way that I saw it was that I was learning things that I didn't even know I didn't know. Uh, It was such a revelation. I mean, I had heard about Washington and I sort of had a vague idea that Republicans and Democrats were different, but it never occurred to me how important that your party affiliation was, and it never occurred to me that it was extremely important never to say what you thought in public. It was not. It was not a good fit for me. I have to say, 
Uh, Micah was in trouble all the time, just all the time. Um, and I was really impressed by, I saw policy being made. Uh, I watched it. I was dealing with it on a daily basis. Mostly I was editing that report and writing most of it. But even that was so enormously politicized that I couldn't help but get caught up in the politics. Um, and I knew that it was something that I wasn't going to be able to do. I fled back to a university and started looking for university jobs right away, mostly because I can't keep my mouth shut. And the um, and and I just, you know, it, the wonderful thing about universities is that you can say anything you want. We, you've got academic freedom, and you have to take the consequences of it. But at least you don't have people telling you that you can't say this because it doesn't reflect the views of the institution that you're working for. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, when I think about nutrition and politics, I immediately think about, well, what USDA now calls my my plate, I believe. Before that, it was the food pyramid, of course. And And I was wondering, do you think that the USDA is giving people good advice here? Well, I happen to know a lot about how the My Plate came about, and it was not done by nutrition professionals. It was done by a political group at, out of the White House, um, and so there. And I understood what they were trying to do. They wanted a clean break with the pyramid, uh, but those of us who were sort of talking to them about it, who are in the nutrition field felt that what they really ought to do was just tweak the pyramid, which was by far the best graphic ever designed for conveying what a healthy diet is. Um, and it really didn't require that much tweaking, just moving around the fruit and vegetable and grain bars would have taken care of it. Uh, but they wanted a clean break. And the this parts of the my plate that I like very much, I love it that make half your plate fruits and vegetables. That's really good advice. Um, but there's other parts of it that just don't make any sense at all. Right. You know, when I took a look at my plate, it seemed to me that there was an awful big part of the plate that was marked grains, protein, and dairy. And, you know, I, I follow nutrition uh, a, a little bit on, on my own. And I've heard a number of nutrition experts say that, well, number one, we already eat too many carbs. We get plenty of protein, most Americans, and that and that dairy doesn't necessarily need to be part of anyone's diet. And so if that's true, it made me think, well, what's driving these recommendations for so much of these things that maybe we don't need quite as much of as opposed to, say, vegetables, which I understand most Americans don't get nearly enough of? Well, I would say it's politics. <clears throat> history and politics, There, there's a long history of the dairy industry and the meat industry arguing fiercely to keep their products as prominent parts of the Department of Agriculture's food guide and the Department of Agriculture, after all, re mainly represents big agriculture. That's its main job. That's where most of its budget, its farm bill budget, goes to supporting uh, industrial agriculture. It, and very little of it goes to supporting what they call specialty crops, which are fruits and vegetables. Um, so uh, that came out of it. But I think a lot of what happened with my plate uh, was that it was done by people who really don't have any nutrition background. 
and and really don't know how to think about it. Which is the last thing you would really want, but the, but there it is. Um, you know, one thing I did notice about my plate is something it doesn't mention very prominently, and that's sugar. And, you know, based on the research I've seen coming out over the last few years, sugar is, is really a huge problem. I mean, there's a, the new book just out by Gary Taubes, and, and others have argued that excess sugar is – really the single greatest public health crisis that we we face and and so i'm wondering if that's true and and is it true why why isn't government doing more about this do you think well actually with the with respect to the my place when it was issued it was issued with six precepts and one of those precepts was to cut down on sugars and soft drinks um but those precepts disappeared from view. But once again, this is highly politicized, and the government is doing something about sugar. The Food and Drug Administration has a proposal to put added sugars on the food label. Well, that, whether that will survive the new administration, I don't know. But there it is. That's a pretty big piece of the effort about sugar. But there's no agency in the federal government that does dietary advising except for every five years when the dietary guidelines come out. And the dietary guidelines said to cut down on sugar, just like they always did. In fact, they in fact they said to reduce sugars to ten percent or less of daily calories, oh. which is the strongest recommendation that's ever come out of the government. Hmm. Okay, uh, you 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 mentioned nutrition labels. I'm I'm a big avid reader of nutrition labels, though I, I have to admit I'm sort of skeptical about the serving sizes, which kind of seem seem on the small side to me. But but I was wondering mm-hmm. what what you think about new, uh, current nutrition labels in general. I mean, do they in your view, do a good job of giving people the information they need, or, or are there maybe some improvements that you think would be good? Well, now, I'm not sure which label you're talking about. Are you talking about the current one or the one that the FDA has proposed for coming into effect in several years? Right. There, I know um, that there's the FDA, I, Yeah, I the know FDA that there's has one. just gone through this big process of changing the labels. And so do you feel that the proposed label, and I've seen that, it seems to me it looks at least graphically a lot nicer than the current label, but but do you think that's a, a real step forward and do we need to do anything else, would you say, or is that pretty adequate information at this point? Well, no. I mean, the, I mean what we know about food labels is that nobody understands them. <laughs> um, when the food label was first put in in 1990, the FDA did this huge research project on the design of the label and the one that was chosen which is the one we have in place now is the one that was least poorly understood they were all poorly understood but this one was the one that was least poorly so it was the least worst of the choices which is kind of not you're not ideal i think it's very difficult to summarize everything that you want everybody to know about nutrition in one tiny little graphic that's going to fit on a food package. And the FDA did the best it could with it. Other people have attempted to produce alternative designs. In my view, they're worse because the people who are doing the designs don't really understand the nutrition either. And so they're proposing things that make no sense, like the business of having a protein category 
in my plate when um, grains and vegetables and dairy products all have protein and they're not part of that particular sector. So that's lack of understanding of how nutrition actually works. But in in any case, the food label is focused on individual nutrients, and that's always a slippery slope. What you want is you want people eating foods that don't have food labels because they don't need them. If you want to eat a healthy diet, never eat anything out of a box with a food label. That would be one starting point. Okay. You know, I, I know you know a lot, and you've written, obviously, an entire book about uh, soda. And you know, whenever cities try to tax soda consumption, it seems to me that they're invariably accused of supporting a nanny state or, or mm-hmm. making life much harder for the poorest people. And so I'm wondering, are you a supporter of soda taxes or other limitations on sugary drinks? Yeah, I am, because they're easy. They're a very easy target. They're demonstrably bad for you. And they have sugars and no redeeming nutritional value. Um, and to the extent that the revenues for for those products are used for public health purposes, I'm for them, and I think that lots of other people are too. And every one of the soda tax initiatives that was up for election in this last election won. They all did. They all passed. And lots of other cities are looking at them too. The argument that soda taxes are regressive, I answer by saying type 2 diabetes is regressive. Uh, Type 2 diabetes is a much greater problem among um, inner city poor, rural poor, and people who drink a lot of sodas. That's regressive. And in the places where the soda tax is passed, even people who are poor and you know don't have much money and live in bad areas, et cetera, et cetera, voted for it because they understand that they have relatives who have type 2 diabetes or other consequences of being overweight, and they understand that this is something that the industry is trying to sell them. Right. Now, now it's not just sodas, right? I mean, it's also uh, energy drinks don't, I mean, have a ton of sugar in them and, and sports drinks and so forth. So it's more than yeah. just... Yeah, uh, they do. But, yeah, they do, but people don't drink as many of them okay. as they do of the regular sodas. Gotcha. You know, there are some people who would argue that we're not doing enough on food safety and in general, and that what we need are tougher and more frequent inspections. But But on the other hand, there are other folks who say, well, that's going to essentially force smaller producers, you know, family farmers and such, out of business because only big factory farms can really afford the regulatory burden. I mean, do you have a a view on this? Do we need more regulation? Is that going to be too much of a burden for smaller producers, do you think? Well, I'm of the opinion that everyone who is involved in the food system should be doing it safely, large or small. Everybody who's producing food should be producing food that's not going to kill their customers um, and the people who eat their food. So my starting position on this is that everybody needs to follow standard food safety procedures in order to make sure that they're not killing people with the stuff that they're producing. Yes, there's a regulatory burden, and and the law recognizes that, so it's not as great a burden on smaller uh, operations than it is on larger ones. But the issue that 
the idea that people can't follow food safety procedures because they can't afford to makes no sense to me. They shouldn't be in the business. They have to do, or they have to do it safely. There's no reason why people who are in the food business should be killing their consumers. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think we can all certainly agree on that. Do, do you think that? Do you think that we do enough in terms of having enough inspectors with enough of a budget to get out there and do high quality inspections of of these producers, or or do we need to do more in this area? In your view, no, we don't do nearly enough. Um, and the reason for that is that Congress has systematically given the FDA more and more and more to do and less and less and less money to do it with. Um, so Congress doesn't want the FDA to be uh, an agency that's really strong and inspects. You know, we have, the FDA only inspects about 1% of imported foods. And, you know, when you think about that, that kind of, I don't know, makes my hair stand on end to think about it. That So any food producer sending foods into the United States has a 99% chance of getting away with anything that they send in. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's really something. You know, you know, there's another food safety issue that has become a really big issue in recent years is uh, GMOs, genetically modified uh, crops and so forth. And there were clearly a lot of people, especially on the left, and in fact, Europe has taken a much harder, uh, stronger stance against uh, labeling and other regulations on, on GMOs. Uh, do you think that that's an overreaction, or would you like to see more of that sort of thing in, in the United States? Do you think that would be beneficial? Well, I think the United States made a really big mistake in 1994 when the FDA approved genetically modified foods and said that they not only shouldn't be labeled but could not be labeled as genetically modified. And I was on the FDA Food Advisory Committee at the time. I thought it was just a huge mistake um, because I thought it would lead to a situation in which the public would not trust GMOs, they would not trust the industry, and they would not trust the FDA. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. And my only surprise is that it took this long. Um, if they had been labeled from the beginning and the public would have had a choice about whether to buy them or not, I think people would have made a decision about whether they wanted to buy them or not, and they could have made an informed decision. And we w it would be much less politicized than it is now. I mean, there are many, many issues about GMOs, only one of which is safety. There are also issues about who controls the food supply, who decides what people eat, who decides whether people are informed about what they eat. And even if you think that GMOs are safe, those other issues matter. Right. Right. So do you think that going even further than labeling requirements to actual, you know, banning certain types of, uh, of foods that have GMOs? I mean, is there is there good are there good reasons to support that sort of thing, do you think? Well, I think there are good reasons to look at the way GMOs are produced. They now account for. 90%, um, um, that's a rough figure, but 90% of corn, soybeans, sugar beets, and a couple of other crops, that's monoculture. But that's not good for the environment. It's not good for um, uh, plants and animals that survive in these areas. 
and it has a long-term probability of not being very effective. And we're already seeing enormous, uh, an enormous percentage of weeds that are becoming resistant to the main chemical that's used with um, Roundup-ready crops. Um, glyphosate, that there's just enormous weed resistance that's developed as a result of using this much, which means that farmers are now having to use other chemicals as well. And all of the reasons for promoting glyphosate are slowly disappearing. Um, so these were are things that regulatory agencies should have taken into consideration, and I can tell you from having been on that committee in 1994 is that they were well aware of them because there were people who were thinking about these issues who were raising these issues, and weed resistance was one of them right then because there was already evidence um, for the beginnings of weed resistance to glyphosate, and now it's enormous. Uh, but the regulatory agencies didn't listen, and they were under enormous pressure from the GMO industry to approve the products and not label them. And this is a very strong and powerful industry that looks at any criticism or any concern as an attack on the whole biotechnology enterprise. Right. It it's, it's almost seems like food policy is driven considerably more by the interests of, of huge producers than it is by in the interest of, of public safety and nutrition. Uh, that is an understatement. <laughs> A very depressing understatement. Um, so do you think that, that – do you think that there should be some sort of a, a, a new agency or different agency to be making food policy, or can the FDA handle this, or, or, or exactly, you know, what are, do you see as the big flaws in our regulatory system right now? Well, um, what used to be called the General Accounting Office, and um, now it's the Government Accountability Office. Uh, I think 30 years ago, started arguing for a single food safety agency uh, that would unite the functions of all of the different agencies that are now have aspects or interests in food safety and run it, um, you know, run it in some centralized way. And others think that there should be a food policy agency that takes a look at our food policy as a whole because Right now, we have an agricultural policy that has nothing whatsoever to do with health policy and a health policy that and has nothing to do with agriculture, and yet they're very tightly linked. Um, so if we were going to look at the kinds of ways in which the government supports food production, it would be really nice if it took health into consideration in that, and that would be very different from the kind of food system that we now have. Hmm. Uh, what... Do you have uh, any thoughts on Donald Trump's pick of uh, former Georgia Governor Sonny Perdue to head the USDA? Uh, uh, any sense of if he'll be any kind of a departure from Tom Vilsack, who was President Obama's pick and uh, another former governor this time of Iowa? Um, any, any thoughts on what we might see out of the USDA in, in the next – in the years to come? Well, in general, the president has picked – people to lead agencies who are opposed to the policies of those agencies. Uh, <clears throat> so they were picked in order to disrupt what those agencies have been doing. Um, and I think we just have to wait and see what that 
disruption looks like. I don't have a crystal ball. Right. That, what, what did you think about uh, Tom Vilsack at, as, the, in, as the USDA commissioner? Was he Did he do a reasonably good job or – Yes and no. I mean, I was very impressed when he first came in, that he came in with an agenda to revitalize and repopulate rural America. Uh, He was unable to do that. Um, And that really didn't work. The only thing that the uh, government did for rural America was to introduce broadband. And we're seeing the results of that. we're, We're seeing the results of the lack of repopulating and revitalizing in the results of this last election. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say are the most important food policy issues today in the United States, the things we should be most concerned about? The big ones are people who don't have enough food and people who are eating too much food. Those are still the big ones. Um, the, the two most important public health issues around food are food inadequacy and insecurity and obesity. And in order to address that, we need to develop food systems that are going to promote healthier food um, and make sure that there's enough to go around for everybody. And these are big policy issues that um, I don't see the government addressing I don't think this new government is likely to be addressing that in any useful way. And that means that grassroots political advocacy is going to have to uh, take care of those issues. Yeah. Well, well, if you could kind of follow up on that, if you could give President Trump any advice and assuming he would listen to you and, and take that advice. Uh, uh, That's a pretty funny thought. Oh, well, yeah. But, but what, what would you what would you say to him? I mean, what, what would your, you know, the top priorities, the top things you would tell him that really we need to do to make America great again from a from a health and nutrition standpoint? Well, one thing we have to do is to shore up our agricultural system, and that means dealing with the whole question of farm labor. Um, The new wall uh, with Mexico and his uh, statements about immigration suggest that he's just not getting the idea that agriculture runs on migrant labor and that something has to be done to make that possible and to pay workers decently. I would say one of the main issues in the entire food system is how poorly people are paid who pick our crops and grow our crops and who work in um, our food industry in general. Uh, So the issue of how much they're paid is enormous and that has enormous health implications. So many of the issues that um, President Trump has said that he's going to be dealing with affect food, although not directly, somewhat indirectly. Right, right. So just one final question for you. Uh, Aside from checking out your books and following you on Twitter and foodpolitics.com, all of which I highly recommend, by the way, are there any other sources, books, resources, what have you, that you might recommend to people who are interested in becoming better informed about these uh, very important issues? 
Well, I think you have to pick your issues. Um, Center for Science and the Public Interest publishes Nutrition Action Health Letter, and for anyone who's re- interested in the relationship of nutrition to health, it's only $15 a year, and it's really worth getting. Um, I read a lot of government documents, and I get newsletters from lots and lots of different organizations that come in every day. Uh, I can't think of any one source uh, except that in general, uh, if you want to know what mainstream nutrition information or health information is about, the government sources aren't bad. Right. Okay. Well, thank you very much. We'll, we'll end with that. Uh, Professor Marion Nessel, thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, my pleasure. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, thoughts, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash politicsguyspage, and we're on Twitter at politicsguys. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. Sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website. And if you enjoy the show, you should check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.